going to be looking at John chapter 18 today, the first 11 verses. Seems like it's been a while since we've been in John. Uh, we took a break uh, over the first weeks of the new year, and uh, we're now picking up where we left off uh, in December with the beginning part of chapter 18. Begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us this portion of your word today, and we pray that you would open our eyes through the work of your Holy Spirit, that we might see the wonderful things that you want us to see from it today. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is. And as we see Jesus for who he is, we pray that you would help us to believe in him and that by believing in him, we might have life. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's remember where we are in the book of John. Uh, all the way back in chapter 12, which was what we were looking at back in, the, in May of last year, uh, we saw in chapter 12 that Jesus and the disciples entered Jerusalem for the last time. And since then, we've been looking at essentially what is the last week or so of Jesus's life. As we looked at chapters 13 and 16, or 13 through 16, it was back in September and October and November, uh, we saw Jesus gather his disciples together in what was usually referred to as the upper room, and he began talking with them and, and teaching them and, and preparing them for what was coming. He told them, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave and you need to get ready because it's going to get bad. You need to be ready and prepared. And we saw early on in that discussion that Jesus was having with the, the disciples at the dinner that he had with them, that Judas got up and left, and he went out to begin to plan his uh, way of betraying Jesus. Then in December, we were looking at chapter 17, and we, we saw this wonderful, priestly, gracious, caring prayer that Jesus offered for his disciples that were with him in the moment, but also for us, as he prayed for those who would become his disciples in the future. 
Then as we begin chapter 18 today, we see that Jesus and the disciples left the upper room. They made their way east out of Jerusalem, out of the city, and they crossed the Kidron Brook. Now, some of you have been to Jerusalem and been to that area, and you know the Kidron Brook. Uh, during the non-rainy season, it would have been mostly dry, so it would not have been difficult for Jesus and the disciples to cross the Kidron Brook. So this is where we are in the book of John. But we also need to remember John's purpose in writing these words. If you'll turn probably what is just one page in your Bibles to John chapter 20, we remind ourselves that John gave us the purpose of his book. He tells us why he's writing this for us. Look at John 20 verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I'm, I'm telling you why I'm writing these words. I am, I am writing these words so that you can believe in Jesus. And that by believing in Jesus, you can have life. As we move into this final section of John's book, it'll be incredibly easy for us to see and to know who Jesus is. He's going to show us over and over and over again of who is this Jesus? What does it mean to believe in this Jesus? And today, John shows us who Jesus is. He shows us that Jesus is the second Adam. He shows us that Jesus is the sovereign authority. He shows us that Jesus is the compassionate substitute. And he shows us that Jesus is the faithful Savior. So let's look at these four things that he shows us in these verses. First of all, that Jesus is the second Adam. Now, where do we see that in the text? We'll look again uh, at chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Where did Jesus take them? As, he, as they left the upper room, as they crossed out of the city, where did he take them? Where did he lead them to? He led them to a garden. It would have been in or around the Mount of Olives, just to the east of the city of Jerusalem. For John, gardens are really important. As we'll see coming up in chapter 19, John's going to point out that where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And we'll see when we get to chapter 20 that John is going to point out that where Jesus was buried in the tomb and where he resurrected from the tomb, there was a garden. And it's not a coincidence. John is being intentional and purposeful. He's showing us the presence. He's showing us the motif of a garden. Why? John is connecting Jesus, his, his arrest, his death, his resurrection with the first garden, the beginning of Genesis. He's contrasting Jesus as the second Adam with the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. The first Adam sinned in the garden and brought us the penalty of sin and death. And now the second Adam is going into a garden to begin the process of redemption, of bringing forgiveness of sins and life. The first Adam spent time talking to, the, to Satan in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam spent time in the garden talking with his father in prayer. The first Adam fell in defeat. The second Adam would not be defeated 
but would be conquer, but would conquer. Jesus is the second Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do when he plunged humankind into sun. And Paul picks up on this idea of Jesus being the second Adam in Romans chapter 5. Listen to what he says. These wonderful words. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man in Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought common condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Through Adam came sin and guilt and shame and death. And through the second Adam comes the payment for that sin and the removal of guilt and shame and the giving of eternal life. Do you see the love of your Savior? Do you see Jesus, the second Adam? Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of the fall. And Jesus is going into the Garden to remove the effects of the fall. He will remove the curses that were pronounced in the first Garden and he's preparing an even better garden for us to be with him forever. Shows us the love of our Savior as we see him as the second Adam. But we get another picture of who Jesus is here. Not only is he the second Adam, he is also the sovereign authority. Now look at what it says in verse 4, back in our John 18 text. At the beginning of verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus knew everything that was happening. It was part of the reason that Jesus led the disciples out of the upper room and out of the city and to the garden. It was to give Judas time. It was give, giving Judas time, the time he needed to get his arresting party together to go and find Jesus. And notice a couple things about this crowd that came for Jesus. Look at what we see in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And one of the things that we see in terms of those that were there was it was a band of soldiers. That's a very specific Greek word that's being used there. It referred to a Roman cohort of soldiers. An entire Roman cohort consisted of 600 men, and almost always these cohorts were made up of of experienced, battle-hardened men. When an entire cohort wasn't needed to take care of a situation, they would usually send out detachments of 200, 200 soldiers. And it's likely that's what was going on here. Roman soldiers came 
likely at least a couple hundred, and likely to prevent rioting if the people were to see Jesus being arrested. But, but did you notice we can even see Jesus' sovereign compassion with that? Jesus went out of the city. He got away from the crowds. He knew what was coming. He didn't want the crowds to have to clash with the soldiers. So he takes his disciples and himself out of the city, away from the crowds, and in the thick of darkness. So there were these band of soldiers that were part of this crowd. But then also notice that there were officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are the Jewish religious authorities. And these men referred to here are likely the temple guards, the, the guards that took, uh, did their work in the temple. And then, of course, who else is there? Judas. He knew the place well. He had been there frequently with Jesus. And he led the crowd to Jesus. You see this picture that in the darkness of night, the one who is representing the darkness of the evil one himself, carrying an artificial light, brought the crowd to the light of the world. And did you notice they came expecting that they were going to have to hunt for Jesus, that he was going to be hiding and trying to stay away from them? That's why they have lanterns and torches. They also came expecting that there could need to be violence because that's why they brought weapons. But Jesus wasn't going to be hiding. He wasn't going to defend himself. Why? Because Jesus knew everything that was happening. He was in control of what was happening. Notice what he did in verse 4 as this, as this sizable, noticeable crowd of soldiers and religious authorities with their lights and their weapons are moving out of the city and in closer and closer to the garden where Jesus is. What does he do in verse 4? He doesn't wait for them to come and address him. He goes out of the garden to them and he engages them. Jesus is the one that is in charge. These Soldiers and authorities thought that they were in control. But what we see is Jesus as the one with authority. We can see it especially as the dialogue begins between Jesus and the soldiers. In response to Jesus' question, he asked them, who are they looking for? Who, who are you seeking? Uh, notice what happens in verse 5. They answered him. That means more than one of the soldiers blurted out, Jesus of Nazareth. Then what did Jesus say? Look at what he says in verse 5. I am he. Now most of your translations will have a little footnote right there. And you'll see down in the bottom of your, uh, your Bibles that the word he is actually not in the Greek. Jesus said two words in Greek. He said ego eimi. I am. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, I am, Jesus says. If you've been with us in our study of John, then you know the importance of that statement in John's gospel. Jesus has already used that statement on a number of occasions to declare who it is that he is. He has said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and life. And probably the most poignant thing that he said, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, when they heard that, they knew what he was saying. 
It went back to Exodus chapter 3 when God was calling Moses to go to Pharaoh. And, and Moses asked God, when I get to Pharaoh, who should I say is sending me? And God says, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. And here is Jesus confronted by this crowd who has come to arrest him. They say they are looking for Jesus and he says, I am. It's so clearly a declaration of his sovereign authority. The fact that he is God in the flesh. The preacher Alexander McLaren has said, as he was thinking about this phrase that Jesus says, I am, he says, I'm inclined to think that here there was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh and an omission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled within him. And that was enough to prostrate with a strange awe, even those rude and insensitive men. When he said, I am, there was something that made them feel this is the one before whom violence cowers abashed and in whose presence impurity has to hide its face. And where do we see that in the text? Well, what happened when Jesus said, I am? Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This, this massive crowd that is likely hundreds of battle-hardened soldiers and religious authorities with their lights and with their weapons, when they hear Jesus say, I am, they draw back and fall on their faces. He gave them just a small glimpse of his glory, of his power, of his sovereignty, of his authority. And at the just the glimpse of it, it knocked them to the ground in awe and in submission. Who is Jesus? He's the one with all sovereign authority. He is God in the flesh. We can see Jesus' sovereign authority in one last way here in verse 7. Look at what he says. As they've been knocked to the ground, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? Jesus, these soldiers have gotten derailed from their plan. They've gotten derailed from what they're trying to do. They've been knocked off their feet by the power and sovereign authority of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as if Jesus is helping them to get back on track. He's the one that's in control. It's as if he's saying, okay, um, now get back up. Who is it that you're looking for again? Well, here I am. I already told you that it's me, so let's get going with this. Jesus is the one who is in sovereign authority because he is God in the flesh. Bono is the lead singer for the rock band U2. He's globally known, and he's also a man of faith in Christ. He was interviewed back in 2004 And the interviewer said this to him, Jesus Christ has value and is ranked among the great thinkers of the world, but the Son of God? Don't you think that's far-fetched? And here's how Bono responded. No, it's not. The secular response to the Christian story always goes like this. Jesus was a great prophet had a lot of great and good things to say along the lines of others like Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Christ says, no, don't call me just a prophet or a teacher. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So we are left with this, really. 
Either Christ is who he said he is, or he is a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that half of the human race from around the globe has had its history completely changed by a nutcase, for me, that is what is far-fetched. Listen, if, if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you haven't bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't bowed your knee to His sovereign authority, then you need to understand that a day is coming, either when you die or when Jesus returns, that you will be forced to bow before Him. Just like these soldiers and Jewish religious authorities who came to arrest him. But if you wait to embrace Jesus until he confronts you at the end of your life or at the end of time, then you'll be forced to bow in submission but not asked to raise up again. But to spend eternity separated from him in hell. There is one who has all sovereign authority. He is God incarnate. He is God himself. And he calls you to put your faith in him and him alone. Jesus is the sovereign authority. He's also the compassionate substitute. We can see that in verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. So here's this arresting crowd and Jesus interacting with them says, I'm the one that you've come for. I'm the one that you're looking for. Let these disciples go. Let them go free. Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, he certainly he was wanting to protect the disciples physically. He didn't want them to be harmed. He didn't want them to be imprisoned or, or worse. He had work for them to do. They were going to be leaders in the church. They were going to be preaching the gospel. They were going to start churches. They were going to be writing books of the Bible, including the one that we're looking at here now. So Jesus certainly wanted to protect them physically. But Jesus also wanted to protect them spiritually. He knew that they had a genuine faith in him, but he knew how weak and shaking that faith was. He knew that they probably wouldn't make it through what was about to come for Jesus with their faith intact. That's why John gives us this parenthetical comment in verse 9 that Jesus said what he did and did what he did because he wasn't going to lose any of his disciples. And so with that same sovereign authority, he orders the crowd to leave his disciples alone. Let them go. That shows us Jesus as our compassionate substitute. Jesus Christ stands before the judgment seat of, the, of a perfectly holy God. And he says, yes, these ones that you have given me are sinful, fallen people. And yes, they deserve to receive the, the wrath and the judgment of God for their sins. But take me instead and let them go. Put their sins and their guilt on me. Put the wrath and the judgment that they deserve on me. Put the death that they deserve to die on me. And take me instead and let them go. Give them life and freedom instead. Do you see your compassionate, loving, grace-filled substitute? 
The one who puts himself in danger to keep you safe? The one who promises that he will save us to the uttermost? That he will always look out for us and care for us and preserve us to the very end? As the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 7, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jim Boyce, as he was reflecting on this Jesus as our loving, compassionate substitute, said, Jesus shows his effective, persevering grace with us by lifting us from the darkness of this world into his own marvelous light, by interceding for us in heaven, by guarding our spiritual deposits, by seeing us through temptation, by saving even our bodies at the time of the last resurrection, and by bringing us at last and without blemish into the presence of his own and the Father's glory. Do you see your compassionate substitute? Lastly, we see Jesus as our faithful Savior. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? And we kind of shake our heads, don't we? Poor Peter. (laughs) He is consistent in his misunderstanding until the end. He pulls out what would have been a long knife, kind of a dagger type weapon, and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, why did he do that? Could have been for a couple of reasons. The obvious one was that he was trying to defend Jesus. He hasn't he hadn't gotten it through to hadn't gotten through Peter's mind yet that Jesus had to be arrested. That was the plan. Jesus had told him that was the plan, that he was going to be taken in and killed. But Peter is still thinking that Jesus was going to establish some earthly kingdom or be some political Messiah. So he thought he had to protect him. It shows Peter's bravery, perhaps. But not being very smart, his little sword against hundreds of weapons... There's another possible and and maybe more sinister reason why Peter did this. Did you notice that John goes out of his way to tell us who this man was, the the man whose uh, ear Peter cut off? It was Malchus. He's the servant of the high priest. He tells us his name. He tells us even what ear he lopped off. To cut off an ear or to disfigure someone's face particularly the face of the servant of the high priest in that culture, it would have brought shame and disgrace to the high priest himself and potentially even cause him to lose his responsibility. Now, regardless of what motivated Peter to do it, it was useless, it was pointless, it was foolish, and it was against the plan of God. Peter had just spent three years being discipled by Jesus. Jesus had told Peter over and over and over again what was going to happen. And at the key moment, rather than resting and trusting in what Jesus had told him, he takes out a weapon and gets violent. How did Jesus respond? He responded as a faithful 
Savior. He told Peter to stop and to put his knife away. And we know from Matthew's account that he told Peter, don't you understand that I could call at a word and have 12 legions of, of angels at my disposal? Put your little knife away. And in Luke's account, we read that Jesus stretched out his hand and healed Malchus's ear. You see what Jesus is doing? Rather than chastising Peter, or worse, he could have told the crowd, bring Peter with me. But rather than doing that, what did Jesus tell him? What does he say at the end of verse 11? Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We know what that cup is in reference to. It referred to it's referred to many times in the Old Testament. It's the cup that is filled with the wrath and the judgment of God against sin. So what was Jesus telling Peter? He was preaching the gospel to him one more time. He was pointing him to grace one more time. That's what a faithful savior does. That's what your faithful savior does. Each and every time that we come back to Him after that besetting sin once again, after another failure, we come back to the Lord Jesus and He points us to His grace. He points us to the gospel. He reminds us that He has taken the cup of the wrath and the judgment of God against sin and He has drunk it down complete. He has drained that cup There's nothing left for us to drink except the cup of God's blessing, of God's grace and His goodness and His loving kindness. This is who Jesus is. He's our faithful Savior. He's our compassionate substitute. He's our sovereign authority. He's our second Adam. And we remember what John said was the purpose of his book. That we may believe in Jesus and so have life. So the question for us as we end today is do we believe? Do we believe in this Jesus? Do we believe the Jesus here of John 18? Or are we more like Judas? We're with Jesus. Doing things of Jesus hanging around but don't really believe Him. Or maybe we're more like Peter. We're in the church doing all the church things, hearing God's Word. But when it comes down to it, we really think that we have to take matters into our own hands. Our salvation really is dependent on us. It's dependent on what we do, how we can keep ourselves in God's love rather than resting and trusting in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe we think we need to protect Jesus from the world. Water down His message. Make Him safe. John, and more importantly, Jesus Himself, are calling on us to believe in the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of John 18. And they're calling on us to believe and to put our faith in Him as He, who, as he really is. And by so doing, having life. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Father, that you've given it to us. And in it, you tell us about who Jesus is. 
And as John helps us to see these pictures of who Jesus is, we pray, Lord, that you would that you would give us hope and strengthen our faith. That we would not only understand who Jesus is intellectually, but father, that you would cause our hearts to burn with a greater love for who Jesus is, a greater love for Jesus himself. And that as a result, Father, of you strengthening our faith and giving us a better understanding and giving us a greater love and heart for Jesus, would we delight to go out and live for him to truly be his follower, to love and obey him in all the ways you call us to do that. We ask you, Father, to do this because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.